Everybody Googles everything, especially potential customers or employers, and a business or personal online reputation can make or break you. If negative search results or reviews are impacting you, Webamax is here to help. Our proven process restores your online reputation quickly and effectively, and it matters. Don't let negative results control your narrative. Visit GoWebamax.com and fill out a brief confidential form to see how we can help. Remember, if you aren't paying attention to your online reputation, someone else is. GoWebamax.com. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad... To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad... To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.
it's time for Cover 2 Broncos. Just a couple dudes breaking down scheme, film, and the numbers. Now, your hosts, Joe Rowles and Jeff Essery. Welcome back to another episode of Cover 2 Broncos. I'm Jeff Essery. And I am Joe Rowles. So we had, yeah, a big win for the Broncos and big time performance from really the offense overall. Obviously, the big storyline is going to be Drew Locke and his performance against the Carolina Panthers, but special teams showed up. You had Deontay Spencer getting a, I think it was 83-yard touchdown run. Um, he, He won the special teams player of the week. That was just announced. And so big game all the way around for the Broncos. And, I mean, to me, it was... It was a little surprising. I mean, we talked last week about what to expect, and I certainly didn't expect this this level of the of execution and the kind of explosiveness that we saw on Sunday. Um, so we'll dig into what we liked. We've reviewed the tape and and talked through some of that, and then we also have a special guest that Joe's going to um, talk to us about here in just a second as well. Yeah, so I am a big fan of football obviously and one of the things that kind of comes with that is a lot of the places i pay attention to aren't even necessarily tied to the broncos specifically one of them is cover one which if you're familiar with cover one they cover the bills um and so i reached out to them because again i i've been following them for three years now just keeping up with all the different film breakdowns they do and Greg over at uh, Greg Topset over at Cover One has agreed to come on, and so we will pick his brain about Josh Allen and the Bills shortly. But before we do that, I really want to go over this game because that is probably the most complete game I've ever seen Drew Lock play. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I would say the most complete game we've seen from the Denver Broncos offense overall as well. I mean, they ran the ball well. I thought the the offensive game plan was solid. Um, play calling was on point. And to your point, Drew Locke executed it at a really high level. And I thought that it was a, you know, the word that I kept coming to in the first half was efficiency. Mm-hmm. And it actually, it actually caused a little bit of controversy within, you know, during the game. I don't know if you saw this, Joe, during our, in our mile high kind of chat that we have going on during the game is at, you know, at halftime, the, the Broncos offense, um, you know, they hadn't scored those big touchdowns yet. And I think it was, what are they going to halftime at? It was, they were up by, up by a one score, I think, um, against the Panthers when they went into halftime. But it, it wasn't, you know, the big, the big plays that we had seen yet. And so the offense was still kind of finding their footing a little bit, but I thought still even going into halftime that it was very efficient. I mean, I think Drew Locke went into halftime at 75% completion percentage and Denver was two of four on third down at, at halftime. And even though they hadn't put up a lot of points yet, and that's where I got a little bit of pushback during the game of, you know, is this really what we want? Is this efficient offense if they're not putting points on the board? And to me, I would say, yes, that's, that's the definition of efficiency is that you're converting on third down and your quarterback is completing passes at a high rate. Now, obviously, the next piece of efficiency or the, the last kind of leg, I would say, is red zone efficiency. And that's the ultimate 
and that's where you're putting points, you know, pushing the ball into the end zone and putting points on the board. But Denver had a very efficient offense that we hadn't seen from them. And then in the second half, obviously, it kind of blew up um, in a good way and got into the more effective side. It was efficient, both efficient and effective. But I think, you know, that was big for me to, to see and particularly to see Drew Locke be able to helm an offense like that. And I was really impressed with his, you know, I don't like to get caught up in completion percentages and numbers a ton because they don't always tell the whole story. But Drew Locke finished with a 70, almost a 78% completion rate. And that was the best, that was his highest since the Texans game. And, you know, it's not just about the four touchdowns, but to me, it's about the efficiency that he played with. I mean, the, the highest completion rate he had had all year was 66%. And that was the first week against the Titans. And so what a huge jump in one game. And obviously it is just one game, but to me, that's what I was really impressed with. Obviously the four touchdowns, no picks, 149 quarterback rating is big, but I was really impressed with the efficiency that Drew Locke showed specifically on Sunday. So in the first half, Drew Locke complete, found seven different receivers across 16 completions. Those passes totaled 85 yards. The only like long ball was Jerry Judy caught that one pass for 31 yards. So Locke had 15 completions for 54 yards um, in the first half. And then, of course, in the second half, he started to blow up by hitting some long bombs. But, yeah, I agree with you. I The thing, the thing is, the Miami game and the Kansas City game really showed that the skill position talent and the offensive line when things are working is good enough to keep them in – keep them in games. Mm -hmm. So Locke doesn't need to play this hero ball. Like you and I have talked about it before is Locke's propensity to play hero ball is actually probably actively hurt the Broncos a few times this year. And against the Panthers, he didn't do it. He took what was there. If, if anything, and again, this is picking nits. Like I'm not upset by this by any means. If anything, he was probably a little bit too conservative on a couple of those plays. But again, like he put the ball in the hands of playmakers and let them make plays. Like we talked about it last week, the Panthers defense was built. Like they're going to try and get pressure on you with extra bodies up front and they're going to try and play over the top of it. So in between there, if you can get past the first level, you're going to have room to work. And so it made a lot of sense for Locke and the offense to try and do what they did in the first half. And I think it set up everything that kind of came after. Yeah. And I think the setup is something that's lost sometimes when you want to shoot for those big plays early on is it really did take the offense a little bit to get rolling. And, and so I just checked it to make sure, but yeah, Denver was just up by one score at halftime that they went into half 13 to seven. And so that was, it was really slow going. I mean, those first two drives, Denver didn't really do a whole lot. They got the first score by Deontay Spencer and then drew lock had that fumble off the sack. And so, you know, it, it could have easily, kind of been another game where the offense isn't producing and things start to to snowball but I do think the way that they stuck with it they kept being patient he didn't force it even though they were struggling a little bit early on and I think they stayed with it and that really opened things up in the second half and I put this on Twitter and I know we've t we talked about it during the game as well Joe is the attention that Jerry Judy got from the Panthers defense and some of that was schemed up attention, right? So Pat Shermer put together, I think a, a really good game plan and ran Jerry Judy at a lot of their, some of their zone coverages to really draw, draw them away and sneaking guys behind them or pull safeties away. Um, but also Judy just commanded a lot of, a lot of attention, but 
I was going back through the tape right before we jumped on, and there was an 11-yard completion to Judy on a PA rollout, and Judy came all the way across the field on kind of a – it wasn't really – I guess you call it a deep over. It was an over route. And came all the way across the field, and Locke hit him right on the sideline. And you could tell that the defense – was reacting to that the next time around because Judy did the exact same thing. And that's when they came back and hit him with Tim Patrick going up the other way on the backside and snuck out on the backside. I think it was Patrick. And he got free for a big 32 yard gain, which probably it could have been potentially a touchdown. Um, He was really wide open and Jerry Judy had drawn a lot of the defenders over, but it was set up by an 11 yard play several drives back. And so I think that's the kind of stuff. And I think you made a great point, Joe, on Jerry Judy's big play, the 31-yarder as well. That was a playoff of a slant flat concept. And I think you tweeted that out right after the game. And so it was cool to see the layering of Pat Shermer's offense. And that only works if you're hitting that short stuff. That only works if, you, if you're making the defense respect that. Um, you know, we, we talk a lot about – Either you know you run to set up the pass, pass to set up the run, but sometimes you pass to set up the pass as well. <laughs> and you you hit those you hit those short routes. You be patient. You work your concepts, and it requires the defense to pay attention to those. And then you can start hitting them over the top. And I think that's what Denver did on Sunday. Each play doesn't operate in a vacuum. Yeah, it's kind of and so one of the things I really liked about the slant flat or the slogo route that they ran is. And, and again, w- dating back to even way back to when the Broncos acquired Case Keenum, we've known Pat Shermer loves slant flats. And granted, it's a staple of the NFL, but it's it's really a big part of his offense. So it was a great concept to really abuse the fact that the Carolina Panthers were going to be prepared for it. Yeah, and, and we saw that a little bit too back when you mentioned Case Keenum. I, I did a breakdown of Shermer's offense back then of some of the things that he did to try to set up. I think this was the Eagles game when the Vikings played the Eagles in the playoffs. And Pat Shermer was doing the same thing then. He was playing off of tendencies that he knew the defense would be looking for by by looking at their tape and essentially throwing a little bit of a curveball off of that. And so and to me, that's the staple of a, a good offense is you got to have your bread and butter concepts, but then you need to have – um, tendency breakers in there or things that play off of those. I think that's what we've talked about this. That's what makes Kyle Shanahan's offense so um, dangerous is the things that he builds on top that look exactly like or give you the feeling that he's going to run this and then he, he pivots and, and goes a different direction and plays off of your tendency. And so Pat Shermer has a little bit of that sprinkled in as well. And I think we saw some of that come to life last week, which is really encouraging because it's it's starting to mean they're getting past just the base level of the offense as well and and you and I have talked about this a lot Joe is like how much of the offense are they actually giving Drew Locke currently how much are they you know allowing him to run and and working with him on and it felt like they had scaled back dramatically for a little bit on what they were running just because just to think, and it felt like he was a little bit overwhelmed. Right. And so they're trying to, to scale things back and keep it simple. And it felt like this game, they were starting to, to build things in, go, you know, add layers on top of the base layers that they had shown that they could execute. Yeah. 
I think I think the Miami game and the Chiefs game really you got to saw a stripped out version of the offense to kind of like what they're building on from going forward. But this game there was less play action. They leaned on the they 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 called up a lot of run plays still, but they weren't as dependent on the run for Drew Lock to find success because again, they Lock was showing that he's able to hit the short stuff. And the thing is, when you're when you're completing easy passes, it's essentially an extension of the running game. It's an efficient way to move the ball four or five yards at a time. Yeah, and I think that's a huge piece of why it is important to like I'm not going to get just hung up on completion percentage, but here's the here's the big thing too is, and I haven't looked at it. I'll need I need to look at the the numbers, the advanced stats from Sunday's game, and I don't know if you've seen them, Joe, but Drew Locke leading up to this game had been the number one quarterback in the league in terms of air yards attempted. And usually there's a direct inverse correlation, unless you're like mm-hmm. Patrick Mahomes or somebody else. I think Patrick Mahomes and you know the great ones, maybe Russell Wilson last year. Um, there's usually a direct inverse correlation between completion percentage and air yards attempted. And so what that means is you have a guy like Drew Brees who's typically – throwing he's not he's not attempting a ton of air yards and so his completion percentage is higher because of that and then you could flip it and say the people that have you know the highest air yards attempted typically have a lower completion percentage because they're pushing the ball down the field they're doing those lower percentage throws and so that was encouraging i think to see a guy like drew Locke, who is at the top of the league in the air yards attempted dial things back and actually have a high completion percentage game because that's what you need to see from him. You can't you can't make a living in the NFL at 50-60% completion rate to because of the point that you just made is that it's just not efficient. Like you can't if you want to be able to work the offense like Denver does and run the ball and you don't have this ex- big explosive offense in in your fold, you know? I think you have to be able to work some of those shorter concepts and you look at a 77 or 78 completion rate versus 50 60 that's a big difference in setting yourself up on third down and that's how you can go into halftime two for four on third down and so it all it all feeds off of each other and so i think that was a big piece of of what we saw sunday as well this is going to be game 16 coming up against buffalo this is what this one game against the panthers is what i've been waiting on and not the stats like even if he hadn't hit all four touchdowns even if he had mixed in like one pick, because he did have a couple turnover-worthy plays in there, like the fumble. Like again, I don't care about the stats so much. The way that Locke was able to play within himself, play within the offense, make the passes that were there, take what the defense gives him, and then when the shot plays present themselves, he took them. That's what you need him to do every week. Like mm-hmm. that's what he can be for this offense. And if he and again, if if this Buffalo game isn't quite as pretty but he still continues to show those kind of flashes on tape. I'm going to be really happy. Yeah. Like that's what I'm looking for down these last three games. But so like, I don't want, I don't want to gloss over lock. Cause I know I'm not going to talk about him a whole lot this week, just because again, this is exactly what I wanted to see, but I want to see him do it again. It's kind of, cause I know Carolina is bad enough that there is an element to it that my mind, the skeptical part of me wants to say, I love this. Like my heart is like, hell yeah, let's go with lock. My brain is saying Carolina is dog crap. So like we need to we need to wait before I like go buy a jersey. But I'm just gonna tell you right now, 
if Muti continues to play like he did against the Panthers, <laughs> I'm flying into Tanya Muti jersey. Like, oh my God, Tanya Muti was, he was so good. Um, and again, he had struggles. Like, I'm not saying he was perfect. Uh, Derek Brown got him a couple times on pass rushes. He, he had a pull where he, he lost his footing on the pole, didn't make it out to his guy. But I mean, overall, like he looked like he did at Fresno. Like he was just beating up on people and it was hilarious. And the other thing I really, really liked about his tape is he has the mentality. Like he has the guy, like he's the guy that you take with you into a bar. If you know, you're going to get into a fight. <laughs> and that's, that's what you want as a guard. And essentially yeah. that's what you want. That's what you want as a guard. If you're going to be pulling the guard across like that. Because that guy's gonna surprise people, and you want him to beat the shit out of somebody if he gets them. Yeah, and and, it. and to me, it's a great compliment to Dalton Reisner on the other side, and it's it's exciting to see like that's when when Tony Moody was drafted, and we were worried about can he stay healthy and can he get healthy, and if he does, Denver may have stolen a starting guard in this league at late in the draft, and so. It's really, really cool to see that come to life. Now, obviously, it's just one game, and um, you got to see it see it continue. But that'll be an interesting discussion next year if Natani Moody continues to play. I, I haven't seen um, I haven't seen if Glasgow is going to be playing this week. Do you know? As of right now, and again, the the injury report today when we record this is Wednesday. The re- injury report was projected, and he was list he was limited at practice, or he would have been limited. Um. And so I don't really know how Natani Mute gets to the field eventually. Like I haven't figured that part of it out because I think Cushenberry is now starting to show hints that like he's really progressing too. Um, and again, Glasgow, I know a lot of people are ready to already because Mute's exciting to push Glasgow out the door. But the thing is, Glasgow is such a good pass protector that I wouldn't yeah. just push him out the door. You need him. So again, I, I don't know how that part of it all sorts out yet. I'm not trying to, you know, to try and stir that. I'm just saying like, First game, rookie playing a tough position. He made the Broncos offense able to do power and pull and pin and pull like either direction really effectively in a way that Austin Schlotman just can't. And again, that's not to hate on him, but he just doesn't have the mobility to really get out and pull and really be dynamic on the move like that. Mooty does. Yeah. Yeah, it was fun to see. Uh, One other thing that really jumped out at me that I, well, there's two, but the one that really jumped out at me I thought Michael Ojemudie played better than the numbers. Uh, PFF had him giving up, I think, six catches on eight targets. I went back through the game twice now just because I was really I – w- I really wanted to kind of get a feel for it. A lot of the catches that OJ gave up were the things where, like, he's playing cover four and he's sitting back, and they get him on a quick out underneath. And it ends up – it is his responsibility, but it's a scheme touch. Like, that, that guy's going to catch that pass nine times out of ten times. So it like I don't I don't really care about the numbers stuff with that. Um and then the way he played that end zone fade, I shared it on Twitter already, but like like Chef's Kiss. Like that was <laughs> But that's um back when they drafted like back before they drafted him even, you and I were talking about how they needed like a Prince of Mukamara type who could play on the backside of a three by one and be able to stay with a guy in those situations. Yeah, and maybe and, maybe and, potentially a physical mismatch too, to be able to be yeah. aggressive and physical enough. And I think that that end zone play showed that as well. Yes. And that's and again, it wasn't the whole length of the field by any means. But the thing is, right after they got that fumble sack recovery on lock, Joe Brady dialed up a play to go after a rookie cornerback. That was an isolation fade. They they had all the run action, all the bells and whistles in the middle of the field to draw everybody else away from it. 
And so OJ was by himself on Curtis Samuel, who is a number one ish receiver. He's a good receiver. And he won it. Like he won the rep. Like I loved it. And not only did he win the rep, but as the ball went up, he kept looking for the ball. Like, and granted he didn't get it, but like that kind of mentality is what you want from him. And he's battled. Like I, I, I don't know necessarily if he's going to have a good week this week, because again, Stefan Diggs is going to probably tear him up, but I'm not ready to give up on him just because some of the numbers are bad. And I know he got benched and like, I don't care. Like, again, rookie cornerback is like one of the hardest positions to get thrown into the fire and try and survive at in the NFL in a normal year. And this year without a pre, like we've been saying that for lock all year, no preseason hurt all the rookies. Right. And Moody has played 70, I think it was 76% of the defensive snaps. So like he's, he's making it work. Like he's figuring it out. Yeah. And I was just about to say, I mean, really, you go down the roster or you go down the the picks from the the draft class. It was a good game, or is it, it was a good week for Broncos twenty twenty draft class. You have KJ Hamler scoring two big touchdowns. Jerry Judy, I gave him a game ball. Not only from, I mean, he didn't have the greatest stat line, but he drew a lot of defensive attention, and to me, continues to to look really good out there. You had Natani Moody getting his first start. OJ Moody played well. Lloyd Cushenberry is looking better out there. I think the last two games have been, I've really liked what I've seen from him. And so it's encouraging to see these young guys. I mean, they're all rookies and um, to, to see them continue to progress. And that's one of those things that, so kind of before we get to talking to Greg, because I, I know we're going to pick Greg's mind. I just want to say, the Buffalo Bills are probably one of the best teams in football. Um, honestly, they probably have as good a shot as anybody to knock off the Chiefs this year. They're getting, they're probably getting John Brown back. I haven't checked today, but I'm almost positive they are. Like, it's a disaster type of matchup on def- like for the defense to deal with the offense of the Bills. And it's going to put a lot of pressure on the offense to keep up. I'm hopeful. I'm not, I'm not trying to throw dirt on him i'm hopeful but if things go sideways this week i'm not gonna turn around and say let's fire everybody so i know i know you guys listening tend to be pretty level-headed with this stuff but just keep like there's a lot of good things happening right now the the offense is kind of coming together so even if things don't go necessarily as planned this week it doesn't mean it's all for not yeah i mean the bills are one of the top teams in the afc probably the best you know the probably the third second or third best team in the afc um, they and they knocked off the Steelers, so you could argue they're the second best team in the AFC besides the Chiefs, um, based on their recent history of ending the Steelers, um, you know, undefeated streak. And so Denver is going up against that. So it, you know, to your point, it, it, there's good football being played in Denver. And just if if there is a like preemptively, if there's a bump in the road, which I anticipate there will be bumps against a, a really good team like this, it doesn't negate um, a lot of the good work. And obviously, we'll be here to to talk about it next week as well. But um, just just keep that in mind uh, as we go into um, this game on Saturday. So one of the things that's kind of a it kind of snuck up on me with the Broncos getting getting the win because you kind of like basking the euphoria of it a little bit. But the fact is the Broncos play the Bills on Saturday. So we're already kind of behind the eight ball a little bit. So I I wanted to pivot forward because this Bills game, the Buffalo Bills are going to be the hardest game left for the Broncos. This is the biggest test for Drew Locke. Um, basically the rest of the schedule, like the Dolphins was one thing, but basically the rest of the way, Denver's basically playing pretty weak defenses other than the Buffalo Bills. So, and then obviously Josh Allen. So to get it kind of a, I, I, uh, a good 
feel for all of it. I had to reach out to Greg Thompson over at Cover One, and he was gracious enough to come on. So thank you so much for joining us, Greg. I can't wait to pick your brain. No, I appreciate it, man. Looking forward to it. It's uh, it's fun that you know having teams that we've been in different spots over the years you guys were up while we were down and now we're on the upswing and you guys are rebuilding back into the the spot you need with some really exciting young talent i'm looking forward to saturday i do just want to put out there thank you for um your position in the afc east right now as you know bronco (laughs) fans we love to see the new england patriots go down and we're more than happy for the bills to take that mantle in the in the afc east so Kudos to you guys it's funny, on that. There are very few as unifying of a moment as Twitter enjoying the Rams just smacking the crap out of the Patriots. Like <laughs> there were just so many fan bases just all enjoying it together. It was funny. <laughs> so, kind of, kind of looking right ahead, getting right down to it. Josh Allen, obviously, the the game kind of starts and ends with the quarterbacks. In years past, like Denver played the Bills last year, and I and I actually kind of riled up a lot of Buffalo fans because at the time, like Josh Allen looked like basically evolutionary Tebow. Um, and he's come a long way since then. I did not see that coming. But like what what has really caught your eye is the things he's improved on most. Uh, because I mean it's it's shocking. It really is. No, yeah, you know, obviously I think bills fans and and people in that realm were a lot more hopeful and optimistic but you know we're grasping at straws there there wasn't a ton of obvious evidence coming into this so anyone and then even beyond that um i was amongst the group uh that saw potential in him anybody who said they saw this was lying they didn't that nobody saw this so being able to step into this has been unbelievable so when you ask you know what area has he improved or improved the most what hasn't he you know it's it's been across the board so you know areas that that really stick out is obviously consistency in his mechanics you know when people talked about inaccuracy before it wasn't inaccuracy it was inconsistency you know he had an incredibly talented arm he had an incredibly powerful arm he didn't know how to regulate how to throttle it back and he would make amazingly accurate throws and then next throw five yards over the guy's head or five yards out of bounds just nowhere near the target so it wasn't a matter of capability it was just can you harness it and do it consistently and and that's been the biggest one and he's doing that because you just don't have all that many guys willing to you know rip it down to the studs in the offseason and rebuild your mechanics from your base up and you know all the interviews with with palmer and all the guys there and the work he's done with dorsey and obviously a great relationship with brian dable is you know getting to this point but it's only because he's really completely rebuilt his throwing mechanics and anyone who's willing to do that i joke all the time you you brought up tebow um i always say he's what jamarcus russell and jeff george could have been like if they were willing to be have the humility and the willingness to be coached and the work ethic to put in the time and not just decide that, well, I have a howitzer connected to my right shoulder, so I know how to do everything I need to do. He took it beyond there and was willing to rip it down and rebuild the whole thing. And it's obviously fun being a Bills fan to see that, but it's it's pretty rare. Yeah. I've got to bring up too, because there's a lot of, I think it's analogous to what the Broncos are experiencing currently with a young quarterback who has been inconsistent with a guy like Drew Locke, who is kind of toolsy and you hope you know, gets it. And so a lot of people have kind of held up Josh Allen as 
not I mean not necessarily comparing their games because they do, they are different players, but just more of a hey, this is why you stick with a guy, right? And so, can you speak a little bit about to you know what that what that journey's been like over the last couple of years in kind of the Bills fan base and and what you've heard from the front office? And I mean, it feels like the, you know their commitment has been rewarded, and they they had a commitment to this guy. Of, hey, we're we're just going to stick with him and allow him to kind of strip it down to the studs and and build back up when a lot of teams maybe don't give their quarterback that opportunity to. You know, it's a, it's a year you got to produce and you're out, but it feels like they've kind of been patient with him over there in Buffalo. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did to create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did to create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Yeah, so obviously it takes a perfect storm of those criteria. So one, you need a coach and a GM who are completely aligned in their timelines and their goals. You don't have one who's scrapping for their job and the other one is looking to the future. You also need that quarterback added in the right time frame and trajectory of the organization. So Josh Allen's rookie year, the Bills set the NFL record for the most dead cap ever eaten in one season. You know, so they're obviously ripping it down to the studs in their own way in starting over and you know putting out not the greatest talent around him and scrapping it. And they didn't even have plans of him starting. They thought it was going to be AJ McCarron or good lord Nathan Peterman um, and those kind of things. And he was just his raw talent was too much to keep off the field. So they ended up going that route. But the timing of it made it possible to do that. That you didn't have expectations. You didn't have we didn't have a Von Miller looking for a, a, a winning window to go forward on the roster it, it still took and i don't want to say it's significantly different than Locke, but there's a difference trading away cordy cordy glenn and two second round picks and another first round pick to move up and take a guy versus getting a guy at a pretty trading, good trading back yeah trading back and getting a guy yeah. at pretty good value in the second round so yeah. there is obviously there is a significant need to make sure you've exhausted every opportunity to find out that this guy worked out because you gave up a bundle to go get him. Um, now, I've talked a ton on my show and with plenty of others about the, I know all the statistical models that showed he had the highest bus probability of any quarterback coming out. I watched all the film in Wyoming. I got why people made all the comments they did. I made some of the comments about the off-field stuff that, showing that, hey, he's not the same as some of these other guys. Like he, he shows a pretty legitimate willingness to do this. Obviously, 
all of the things that you heard from Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott about, oh my gosh, as soon as you met this guy, you understood. Like when you walked into the room, he and now you see the way the guys are crazy about him and the way that he leads the locker room and leads everything that's around there in the community and with the team and that guys want to fight for him and the way that he, you know, the crazy highlight plays that you guys see that sometimes go with the sugar rush, Josh, you know, the, in the, the little crazy manic things, but that when you have a guy who's willing to truck somebody on fourth and one to get the conversion for you, you don't want to let that guy down. All those little things. I think that they saw some of that ahead of time. And when you see that, whether, you know, some of the times it could be fool's gold, but they wanted to wait. They wanted to say, hey, man, we've seen how much time he's putting in. We think he can do this. God, I hope it pans out. But I think that all those things, it takes a real cocktail of all those pieces of timing, investment, talent, and that you think you saw a little something special that we just haven't seen on the field yet. And again, I don't think anybody saw this, but it took all of those things to wait three years. How big was it adding Stefan Diggs in the offseason? And I mean, I think he's the only guy in the NFL right now that has 100 catches. So he leads the league. Yeah. I think he's third in the NFL in total yards. So, I mean, we all knew he was good, but it feels like that just kind of helped ramp, take things to the next level a little bit, particularly for Josh Allen. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really hard to put into words what it's done. Is It's the cascading effect. It's not just that he's really good. He's you know, I won't say impossible, but darn close to impossible to cover without bracket coverage. And, you know, when you can decide, hey, the Steelers are coming at us in waves, we need to be able to go max protect and keep seven or eight guys in here and just say, Stefan, we, we need you to roast your dude because we can't afford to have multiple guys in the in the uh, pattern. And he just does it for six straight plays where they know where the ball is going and there's just nothing they can do about it. That's pretty nice. <laughs> that, that's a pretty <laughs> nice option to have. But from an overall season and locker room and depth chart standpoint, what it really did was upgrade everyone else. Yep. You know, John Brown was, you know, outclassed as a, a one, but he did a, a wide receiver one's job. He had a thousand yards and in nice season last year, but he's a nice number two. Cole Beasley, when he's your number two target and you can have the safety come up and pay a little more attention with your nickel and keep an extra eye on him, you know, that's not as good. When you have John Brown and Stephon Diggs out there and you have him isolated, that's really nice. When Gabriel Davis can now just be a luxury as your wide receiver four, that's pretty tough to, to, to handle and to plan for. So it was really the domino effect of what it created that letting everybody else now be an upgraded version of what they were. Plus you added an alpha in the room and all of that, you know, they talk about what it opens up for Brian Dable. If you're a zone coverage unit, you can kind of cover John Brown and Stefan Diggs, but good luck keeping Cole Beasley out of finding a spot in that zone. If you run man, good luck having somebody keep up with Stefan Diggs and it just takes turns on whose week it is. And they've really leaned into that. And Diggs is cool in the games where Beasley has 12 targets. Everybody else is cool in the games that Diggs has 13 targets because they know everybody's going to eat when it's their turn. It's almost like the, the opposite of what happened to the Broncos losing Cortland Sutton. And yeah. I know that, yeah. I know the talents, are, they, you know, they're, they're different players. But but that rung effect that losing Cortland Sutton essentially pushed Jerry Judy into a wide receiver one role this year, when the hope was that he was going to essentially be a two or maybe a three. 
It's very similar, very similar. And, uh, so a lesser degree, we've seen the same thing when John Brown was out. Mm-hmm. Some fans are excited about Gabriel Davis, but it, what it does is really exposes the fact that he's not ready to be your other number one on the outside dealing with a starting you know, number two corner or a starting outside corner. He's great when he's a luxury fourth guy, but you know, it really exposes he's not ready for that. And you know, Judy's obviously at a higher level than what Gabe Davis is, but very similar, similar idea. Suddenly it becomes a trial by fire when they're trying to ease them in. Yeah. Uh, So one thing I really want to, I got to, I got to get kind of your insight on one thing that even as the Broncos have lost Von Miller, as they lost all their defensive linemen, and even last week when they were losing their corner, they went into the game down three cornerbacks. Uh, Vic Fangio still happens to have a really good red zone defense in part because of the way he schemes it up. Running into the Bills, this is probably the best red zone offense in the league, or it should, it's up there. It's probably one of the most unstoppable red zone offenses in the league. What are they going to try and do, do you think, to try and score? Last year they they went ground and pound, and I think that, that that's what I want. That's what I'm expecting. But I know now that Josh Allen has like evolved, like they could definitely torch him through the air there too. So I think the variability has been their biggest weapon. Is that I think fans want them to pick a thing they're good at and just do that. But they've they genuinely study whoever the next opponent is and whatever their weaknesses, they go after that. And Brian Dable does not care if he's going to wear it out and break it off. You know, you heard the comments from Pete Carroll after the game that we had a great game plan to slow down the run game and Brian Dable didn't care. He ran the ball 28 of the first or he passed the ball 28 of the first 30 plays of the game because they couldn't stop him from passing the ball. Um, So it's not like they're going to lean a little bit in the direction. If they find out you're not good at something, they're going to smack you in the face with it over and over and over again. Um, So for Josh, a big difference this year is before you had him where obviously they were tailoring a lot of one read and run one read and run. That's pretty much out of the game plan. He's had multiple games where he hasn't ran at all. um, And he's been all through the air, but where you do still see it is in the red zone because he's being smarter about being careful with his body. He's not trying to truck guys every other play. maybe once a game now. (laughs) Um, But when he gets in the red zone, you do forget sometimes that he's 6'5", 250, and that, you know, it's kind of tough to stop that if he gets ahead of steam, and especially if it's a corner or a safety and he's going uh, along uh, along the outside, you know, he's the size of a defensive end. So, you know, they do a lot of really effective quarterback sneak, and then they, they do that quarterback, you know, sweep option where they go out there in the quarterback power that is really tough when he gets ahead of steam. So um, they've been slowing down a lot on that in the middle of the field and for just 20 to 20 work. But once they get down there in the red zone, they do lean into it here and there. And I, I like it when they, you know, I prefer it as a bootleg with a passing option where he can run versus straight up quarterback power where it's a, a designed run only. Um, but they've been layering in some of that as well. Not looking forward to it. <laughs> <laughs> I, no. I will say, I, I think this was a game I was disappointed early in the year when the set, when the schedule came out because I loved the Broncos draft. I loved all the young talent they were adding and seeing that this was going to be, you know, week 15 and they were this far into the season. And I was like, Oh man, that's going to give them time to gel and figure out what's going on and all these different things going on. And, you know, I've cautioned Bill's fans that you can't take this for granted. There's a, you know, a lot of good talent here, you know, being short five cornerbacks, I, 
I can't lie. I'm going to be pretty disappointed if they if you guys figure out a way to slow down this passing attack. But I do think there's going to be some points scored on both sides. No, I do too. Uh, one thing in particular that I noticed, and I actually was I was listening to the the live show uh, earlier today, so I might actually be way wrong on this because I was looking at some numbers and I saw that the Bills have actually shown at least by like DVOA and efficiency numbers they they're weaker defending the edges this year than they have been on both sides and the Broncos in the last few games, they've really leaned on outside runs. They've, they've done a lot of pin and pull, especially against Miami. I don't know necessarily that they're going to do that because the bills mix in more zone than Miami does, but the Broncos have made an effort to try and attack the edges of the defense and they're willing to go left or right. Do you think that could have some success? Uh, because I, what I'm hoping for is that Shermer does the work necessary to kind of give the running game enough of make the running game enough of a threat to lean on play action because Drew Locke's a different animal on play action than without it. Hundred percent. And we, I, I know one of my friends in the the Bills content community does a, a pretty deep uh, deep dive breakdown in each opponent coming in, and I, I mean Locke has the biggest disparity I've ever seen between <laughs> between you know pressured and not pressured, play action and not play action. It's you know amazing quarterback and really rough and, and just the swing is crazy of, of what's there so i certainly hope that they can avoid getting there because obviously it shows how talented he is when you get in into those good spots um so the bills defense is a tale of two halves of the season um early on losing matt milano losing trey white for a couple games losing micah hyde for a couple games uh tremaine edmonds playing with a separated shoulder uh there were some really ugly performances the numbers were terrible and really really ugly now it happened that they were scrapping out wins and they were outscoring opponents so it wasn't this glaring weakness that was you know it, threatening people's jobs and things like that, but it was ugly. It was really, really bad, especially after three straight seasons of top three or four defense. It was, you know, shocking to see. Um, it's not back to that level of what it was in previous years, but just about everybody's back healthy now. Matt Milano returned last week. Tremaine Edmonds is flying all over the field healthy. Trey White's back. Micah Hyde's back. Um, the defensive line that they swapped out, you know, they lost Jordan Phillips and uh, Shaq, Shaq Lawson and brought in Mario Addison, Vernon Butler, and, and Quentin Jefferson. Those guys are kind of gelling and learning how to how to stunt together and make their, their different inside games. Um, so it's better than it was early in the season. And, and it's certainly better than what the season DVOA numbers are. If you look at some of the weighted ones yeah, in the recent yep. trending, um, there is still, I mean, it's built as a modern pass defense. It is not a balanced defense. You know, we have multiple defensive tackles playing at 285, 290. We have, okay. yep. you know, 230 pound former safeties at linebacker. It's, it is a pass defense first, foremost, and only. Um, I've always joked that they're basically just taunting teams that you don't have the discipline to keep running at us. And eventually you're going to get a penalty or a no gain on first down. And then once we get you in second or third and 10, you're done. Um, and that's what they're banking on is the teams can't consistently get six or seven yards on first down and keep in positive game script and run the ball at them over and over again. Um, because if you can do it successfully, if you can get, you know, first down runs right off the bat, and that opens up the options you have at second and three, where now play action can hit deep, or you can simply run and get the first down. I think this defense is still susceptible to that. I, I think that it still can be beaten that way, and it's probably my biggest fear in the 
uh, playoffs in that it's weird. I haven't said this in literally 20 years now you have to try to keep the bills offense off the field um and that's the way to do it is that if you can just do ball control run game you probably could keep the bills offense off the field so you're saying there's a chance (laughs) and you give it something it's the way it works uh so so when inevitably at some point drew lock will have to probably actually play quarterback in a third and long or a passing situation two mid drive something like that what do you expect Frazier to try and do in that? Do you think he's going to try and amp up a lot of pressure? Is he going to try and play man? Is he going to sit back? I mean, granted, he'll probably do a little bit of all of it. But, like, what, what kind of tendencies start to jump out at you? Because, like I, like, I think of the Chiefs. Like, the Broncos basically play ball control against the Chiefs. But when they did have to pass, Spagnolo sent the house. Like, he tried to pressure Locke, and he made an effort. And if he got burned, he got burned. But he was trying to make Locke make mistakes. Do you think that's what Frazier's going to do, or is he going to try and make Locke sit back and read the field? So in years past, the Bills were always very much a firm cover two zone defense, bend but don't break. We can't take chances because if we give up a big play, the offense can't answer, and we're going to dig a hole we can't get out of. So now having a more high-powered offense, it's opened up some things that Frazier and McDermott haven't shown previously with more aggression, more uh, more blitzing, more just straight-out aggression, but more exotic simulated pressures where, you know, tons of the, the double-A gap, you know, show and posturing, but you don't know who's coming and it ends up that only four guys come, but sometimes it's, you know, a tackle and a corner and a safety and the both linebackers and the DNs drop out into zone, but they only bring four, but you didn't know which four were coming. Um, so plenty of that. And then I think the most underrated thing, both from Sean McDermott is a, a coverage genius and now having Trey white, Micah Hyde and Jordan Poyer having played together for their fourth season. Now they disguise coverage is better than anybody in the NFL. It's just impossible to know, you know, they'll have Jordan Poyer trail of motion across the field in slot just to mess with teams that it's still zone. It's, it's not anything. They just trail them across to make it look like it. Um, They come up and are three yards off the field when it's cover one and he's going to drop back 30 yards at the snap. They have guys that are slowly trotting up and then come on a delayed blitz. And it looks like they have quarters, you know, it's, they're really, really good at disguising what they're doing. And, you know, technically Jordan Poyer's the strong safety and Micah Hyde's the free safety, but it's probably 60-40 uh, of the game of how often they're playing that side, that that role, and how often they flip back the other way. So it's something where I expect that to be more of what they're doing is just trying to make it that Drew Locke doesn't have an easy read at any point of knowing exactly what's coming and that – he's going to have to react mid-play and just make a talented throw with his arm to beat them, not because he had an easy read right off to know exactly where to go. And that's what I'm afraid of. (laughs) I'm always interested because we cover the draft as well. Um, And so there's always prospects that land on, you know, other teams and stuff. And so interested to see, how some of these guys are are looking, and Ed Oliver was a guy that we I really liked, it. really really liked um, when he came out. And so, what's he looked like, and um, you know, what are you guys seeing from him since he's been drafted? So it's a real shame the 
there are fans in the the Bills community who are frustrated with him because you're not getting the splash plays or the box score stuff that they expected. I would say there's no player on the Bills who has been asked to play out of position more than Ed Oliver. When Star Latule opted out, they didn't have a backup plan for one tech. Like teams just don't carry multiple one techs anymore. It's just not that kind of role. And that, oh, well, we signed Quentin Jefferson to be half defensive end, half three tech is kind of Ed Oliver's backup for some reps. And we were fine if Vernon Butler or Harrison Phillips had to play a couple snaps here or there. But it it also became pretty obvious that, hey, those guys can't hold the point of attack. They're just not capable of it. And, hey, yeah, we'd much rather Ed be penetrating and just wreaking havoc, but he's also our strongest defensive tackle and can hold the point of attack. So, hey – Really sorry, but we're gonna have to ask you to play a whole bunch of one tech at 287 and just you know, hey, don't let this double team movie out of there. And he doesn't, it's crazy, like he still, you know, is able to pull that off. So, I actually have kind of prepped people like, hey, next year when they get this figured out and they get started to lay back and probably have a backup one tech just in case, um, you're gonna see a big breakout in year three for Matt Oliver statistically. You're gonna see some of those big splash plays because his number of pressures, his number of hurries those are still great. Like he's still, you know, in the more advanced stats that are measuring things of real impact, not just box score stuff. He's doing great, but it doesn't look great in the box score because it's a ton of keeping Edmonds and Milano clean. It's a bunch of, you know, helping other guys get sacks. You know, the bills are top five in sacks in the NFL and 16 different players have a sack. Wow. Um, So it's, it's just a t- like, I think, you know, AJ Klein is leading the team at like five and a half and Jerry Hughes has five, but there's a ton of guys who have three, four, five sacks. Um, and a lot of them owe them to Ed Oliver. Yeah. That's interesting because I think that's, I mean, that's kind of what Sean McDermott had back on the Panthers too. You always, you always, at least to me, always seemed to have, you know, he was the guy with the two big defensive tackles in the middle and you know, I think of Kwan Short and and Star as well, and so um, yeah, I'm I'm sure losing one of those guys um, kind of throws a wrench in, in things a little bit, but um, yeah, just we, the late opt out was so hard to plan for. It's, it's yeah. you know, if somebody opts out or if somebody retires, somebody gets cut in March, you could plan for that, you know, for agency or the draft. When those COVID opt outs came in, you know, mid August, it, it was really hard to plan for if it fell at the wrong spot. I don't know what the Broncos would have done if DeMar Dotson wasn't sitting out on the street to get signed because when we lost Jawan James, we didn't have a bat. We didn't have, a, we had Elijah Wilkinson, who's essentially a guard playing right tackle. So it's just, I, I totally feel it. I mean, luckily, Ed Oliver played a ton of nose when he was at Houston. Yes, so yeah. If, if there's going to he was out of position at Houston too. Yeah, so he was, he, being <laughs> he was used to being misused. So. Yeah. But, hey, Greg, yeah, thank he's, you he's so fun. much for coming on. Um, we really appreciate it. We know you got to get out of here. Um, would love to get, give us a quick score prediction. Um, what you think will happen. And then are you guys going to beat Kansas city as well? When you get into the playoffs for us, just say yes. So I'll lie to you and say yes, for sure. Um, (laughs) so I, I tell everybody that's out there, I, it's weird. I'm not used to this positive attention. I'm not used to all these shows saying nice things about the bills or putting them in the top three in power rankings this is very, very foreign. I don't know how I'm supposed to act. Um, I don't think it's wrong to say the bills have as good of a chance of beating Kansas city as any team. I think that's an accurate statement. I um, I think it's crazy for anyone to pick against Kansas city. 
they're obviously the most likely team to repeat for the championship. If the Bills play the Chiefs 10 times, the Chiefs are going to win seven or eight of them. They, they just are. Like, they're just really freaking good. But the Bills are good enough. You know, with people like Trey White and Micah Hyde and Jordan Poyer making plays, if you get a couple of those turnovers, like what we – so if the Bills got the game script that Miami got, the Bills have the offense to capitalize. So they probably need that. They probably need that kind of game for Mahomes, those kind of mistakes, that kind of game script. But when the Bills get those turnovers, they would have gone into halftime 24-7. to And then they would have been able to carry it into the second half and not maintain a 17-point lead, but maybe keep up enough to maintain the lead by continuing to score. Um, So it's going to take an ugly performance from Kansas City, but against a team that has the offense to capitalize and do those things. And I think Buffalo can be that team. Um, For this weekend, I I think it's going to be closer than than some people think. I think that, um, you know, there's the... The Bills, especially at number two corner, struggle against big physical uh, athletes at wide receiver. I think Tim Patrick's going to have a nice game. Um, I think that they've shown we've given up some longer touchdowns to strong-arm quarterbacks. So I I don't think Locke's going to have some amazing game, but I think he's going to hit a couple nice ones. Um, I I think it probably is close for a while, and then you know that secondary is going to be stressed in the second half to keep up with the receivers, especially getting John Brown back and having all four receivers out there. I think that eventually they do pull away. I I would guess something like 31, 23, something like that. I think that it stays close for a while. And then the bills probably put up another score later to to pull away a little bit. Um, But I don't think it's going to be some, some crazy blowout or anything like that. I think both teams are going to be competitive. It's going to be a good game. Well, we hope Thank for a so good game, and fun. yeah, I hope it's a, a healthy weekend for, for both teams, and we, we see a great game, so oh, appreciate it. Appreciate it, guys. Appreciate you having me on. KC, just remember, beat KC. I, believe me, nothing would make me happier.